0: Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas with a simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Our scripture reading for today is from Galatians 4, uh, verses 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, good morning again. We are in this fourth week of Galatians, so we're kind of halfway through this book that we've been studying together as a community. I thought it'd be good for us to have a little recap, because I'm sure in our own busy lives, it may be hard for us to recall and remember all that we've talked about and all we've studied Uh, Chapter one is where Paul usually welcomes and introduces his letter to to the recipient of the letter with pleasantries and greetings, but we find in Galatians that he skips all of that, and he finds himself deeply disturbed and frustrated. And so what we find in the first chapter is that Paul has, he's going straight to the point and his issue is what they're doing with this idea of the gospel. And his problem is that they took the gospel and they sought to add to it. And for Paul, anytime you add something to the gospel, it no longer is the gospel anymore. Chapter two, we discovered the details of the conflict. It was between Paul and Peter and this different group that was trying to, to uh, come in and see what God was doing in places like Galatia and add on to it. And so the issue was how Uh, how Jewish do people have to be to be Christian? So for them, it was not merely that someone could believe and know uh, Christ and express their faith in Christ, but it was also they had to continue to live in the laws and the rituals and the traditions of the Jewish faith. And so to be really loved and accepted by God, you had to act, look, and behave like those who historically been his God's people. And this was deeply problematic for Paul, because it's so much more than just about adding on this religious shell around the gospel. For for Paul, he was experiencing what God was doing in moving into new cultures and new people uh, in power. And that's why last week when Jamie preached, she preached on a passage that was so important in chapter three, that to be faithful does not mean you have to cover yourself up with some sort of religious shell. You don't have to have these empty religious acts anymore uh, to be uh, favored and loved by God. Instead, what we find in Galatians 3.27 is you have now been clothed in Christ. People still today will try to convince us and other others that if you really love Jesus, yet you will not only believe in Jesus, but you will wear the coverings of those who are God's favorite people. <laughs> And uh, you'll have to wear the banners of a certain tribe or a certain community or a certain group. And why this is so important is because if our core identity is that we've been clothed in Christ, we will find a unity that is far sweeping. It'll actually defy the boundaries and the lines that oftentimes are drawn within our culture of who is God's children, who is God's favorites, who are God's uh, uh, beloved. And so what we find now in the work of the gospel is we actually deeply belong to one another. This is why chapter 3 ends with this word. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That was a radical statement 2,000 years ago because their society was sliced up in hierarchy, in tribalism, Jew against Gentile, Gentile against Jew. There is hierarchy built in the fabric of their society. Slave, women, children were all second-class citizens, playthings, but Paul would interject, but no longer. Why, you've been clothed with Christ and you're now one in Christ. You belong to each other. You are deeply bound to one another. And sadly, that was not only a radical statement 2,000 years ago. Sadly, this is a radical statement today. That we are still convinced that we have to wear the banners of our society, of antagonism that we find within our culture. And we're still taught that it's not enough to be found in Christ. But friends, we are one in Christ. Christ. The pecking order of value and worth has no place in the church. Races, ethnic groups, economic uh, hierarchy, there's no place for second class citizens in the church. Women are not to be subjugated or subservient. We are one. Hierarchy and tribalism is over when you are one in Christ. The barriers are gone. So with that just being said, then, uh, the next verses we find here is in the beginning at chapter four. I think it's important to note that when Paul was writing this letter, that he he didn't he was not adding numbers to sentences. He didn't have like chapter four new statement, new sermon. Like this is just a letter. Like I'm sure your email, you don't you know put numbers in front of your sentences. So Paul is just writing, and he goes on from talking about being one in Christ, and then he flips over in chapter four with this really complicated and dated series of analogies that are very, very confusing for us as we're really far removed for it. Uh, So let's jump in and we'll see how God shows up in in our reading and our understanding of this. So chapter 4, verse 1, what I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, I'm sorry, underage, sorry, uh, he is no different from a slave although he owns the whole estate. So the Roman tradition, children had no rights or privileges before they were declared an adult. It's not like the Jewish tradition where you're declared an adult at a certain age and you have like a a ceremony to celebrate that. Uh, In the Roman tradition, whoever was the father waited and watched you. And once you began to act like an adult, then they would declare you an adult. And you would move from child into the heir, the rightful heir. But before that, young children had no privileges or rights at all. So they were, uh, in, all, in all accounts, they were treated like any other slave, like any other uh, hired hand. But they did have something that slaves didn't have, those were guardians, verse two. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time is set by his father. So uh, imagine a steward or a guardian to manage and rule over this heir until the transition took place. At that point, the child's identity would have been realized and the guardian would no longer be needed. It would be, the guardian would be dismissed and the child would then be vested with all of the same power and authority that the father had. But until that point, it was like the chaperone like that was living with this heir, making sure that they were learning the right uh, way of living, making sure that they were managed and well-behaved. So what does this have to do with the church? Well, Paul makes the connection then in verse three. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Again, like, Not simple language, it's very confusing. But what Paul is saying here is that as a follower of Jesus, uh, it used to be that before our time had come, we were considered a slave as well. We were living as slaves. And we were imprisoned to what? Well, elemental spiritual forces of the world. Now, what in the world is that about? What does that mean? There's two basic understandings of what Paul was trying to get to there's really interesting for me. Is one is that the elemental forces is, is that which is natural to all people, all self-centered desire. That's just a part of it. like a spiritual force that is a part of us. So the the desire for um, for uh, greed, pride, lust, everything that we we just seem so natural is to make life about us. Now, that is a spiritual force that's just elemental. It's a part of life. That's one understanding. The second understanding the spiritual forces is is that of religion. So we're enslaved to the rhythms and the traditions of religion. All these attempts to be made right by God. Now, what's interesting for me is these two ideas cannot be more polar opposite the self-centered, sinful desires that seem to be a spiritual force, and the religious uh, slavery that we seem to be a a part of, to to, to be made right to God. And the thing that's interesting is that even though they're polar opposite, they seem to have the same end effect, which is slavery. We're imprisoned by either by living for self or trying to be made right with God. For those who are familiar with the Bible, um, imagine, if you would, the prodigal son story. You have the younger brother who is just living for selfish desire and the older brother who is enslaved to, to rule-keeping, being self-righteous, finding his own way of being made right. And both of those lives are a form of slavery. So this is what Paul is saying is that you, when you were underage, you were experiencing slavery under these forces of the world. But then, verse 4, but when the time, set time had come, the set time was not about when you were a certain age or when you showed yourself worthy or mature, because for many of us, that would take a long, long, long time. Uh, maybe I'm still there trying to show it. Uh, but when the time had, had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, so fully human, born under the law, so Jesus came as, a, as one of us and born under the law to redeem those under the law. So when the time was right, Jesus came to us and he didn't live like we tend to live under those spiritual forces, either the, the spiritual forces of selfish living where we have a tendency to, to spend our days in regret and shame, hurting those whom we love the most. And Jesus did not come and experience empty religion. He came to redeem it, to fulfill it. That concept of redemption in both Jewish and, and Roman worlds was when a slave could be made free, and they could purchase that freedom, but also it was when someone else purchased a freedom for someone else. It's when someone could buy a slave's freedom, that was when they were redeemed, when they were lifted out of slavery. So God sent his son to buy us out of slavery, either slavery to the law, or slavery to the basic principles of the world. Christ paid the price of redemption and set us free. Okay, so back to verse four and five. Let's let's just look at this one part. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law to redeem those under law that we might receive adoption, adoption to sonship. So Jesus not only bought our freedom, Jesus went beyond that. Jesus also gave us an adoption, an adoption to be children of God. Their understanding of adoption is, like ours in many ways, if you've been a, who here has been a part of adoption ceremony, when you've seen when someone was adopted? when it's a profound thing, what's been able, what's able to be declared over that child, the adoption comes at, the, at this conclusion of this action when they were brought into a new family, and what sometimes judges say, they use that as a moment, and when you listen to it, it sounds like gospel. It sounds like gospel because what they say is something to the extent is you are now a part of a new family. Every privilege, every responsibility, all the authority as a member of that family is given to you. Their old life is gone. Your new life is here. Your old name is gone. Your new name is here. You are redeemed and adopted, and there's nothing that this world can do or say to change that name. This is what Christ has done on our behalf. Not only have we been set free from the slavery of our past, but we have been grafted into a family now and forevermore. In verse 6, Paul continues to write, because you are his sons, and I would say daughters. God sent his, the spirit of his son into our hearts. Okay, so this is worth unpacking. The sequence is what Paul is writing here is deeply profound. The sequence is that God's goal is moving us from slavery into living unto a guardian to make sure that we are prepared that one day we could experience freedom in adoption, and ultimately to have union with God, that we would meet with God and God's spirit would be in us. Do we see that? That's because you are his sons and daughters, God sent his spirit, the spirit of Jesus, into our hearts. That was the goal. And I find it fascinating that there seems to be a progression, a development in the arc of scripture. If you were to look at the whole uh, arc of scripture that mirrors this kind of development of people. So if I have your permission, could I take a left-hand turn? Uh, I have a little theory I want to share, and this might seem like a little bit off, but just go with me. I mean, you're already sat down. You're already watching this. What else are you going to do? Okay, so just follow me, because I've been wanting to share this theory for a while, uh, and it, it has it has to do with how we teach our children, and how, as our children grow up, we change how we teach them. How does it first begin? Well, it first begins with we tell narratives and stories. So we, we uh, sit with our kids and we t- tell them stories that help them understand how the world works. We hope to give them a framework. Then after that, we give them do's and don'ts. We find ourselves as parents just telling our kids, don't do this, do that. Like for me, lately it's been like, don't run into the street, don't touch the hot pan don't eat cigarette butts on the sidewalk. That's a quote, unfortunately that is a quote. But our life as parents seems to be like do's and don'ts and sometimes we maybe do that phase a little too long. And then after that we uh, move into wisdom teachings. What I mean by that is uh, rather than just saying do's and don'ts we try to share the principles around it. So in our home we've, one of the things that we've been saying lately is, hey people are more important than things. People are more important than things. So if they want to share, we're going to share. Your kid's are going to come over to our house. They're going to play with your toy, your beloved toy. It's, people are more important than things. We're trying to teach wisdom. And as they grow and develop, then we, we continue to do that. Then after that, we warn and watch. What I mean by that is we instruct our kids and then we let them fail. Or we celebrate it when they succeed. And that is so hard to do is to let our children fail at some time. So we we just share them, hey, this is what this is this is wise, this is good living, and we wait and see how they live, and then we bring them back and kindly and gently debrief, we process it, and sometimes we recorded it with our iPhones when they failed, if it's funny enough. Okay. Then after that, embodied teaching. What I mean by this is there becomes a certain point where we start inviting our children to come with me. I want you to see this. I want you to see how I fix my car, or I want you to see how I'm I'm, I'm making this meal. And it's like this embodied teaching because rather than just telling them, you're actually inviting them into the adventure. You're inviting them into processing your own failures and your own struggles. And then hopefully, you entrust and impart. Hopefully at a certain point, your kids are grown and then you send them out. That's the goal, right? (laughs) Is you send them out. You entrust that, hey, you have, you've picked up what we're about in our home, our family, and we entrust it to you and we send you out. Now what is crazy to me is that this actually mirrors the overall arc of scripture in my, in my mind. This is my theory, is that the Bible meets human, humanity and helps us grow in our view of God. Because how does the Bible begin? It begins with narratives and stories. So what do we first see in scripture? Here's a story of a garden, a man and a woman, a snake. Here's a story of a flood. Here's a story of a tower that's being built. And it begins to set a framework for our understanding of what, this is what life is about. This is who God is. And then after that, it moves on to laws, do's and don'ts. The 10 Commandments, we have find ourselves having rules. Don't do this, do this, this is bad, this is good. And after that, there's wisdom teaching, more than just do's and don'ts. Then scripture says, hey, this is what the creator of life calls wise and good and healthy. Then after that, we find in scripture, we keep going, we find the prophets warning and watching, don't do this or else bad things are going to happen. I'm just going to tell you right now. And then bad things happen and then the word of God comes and like, it. I will bring you back. I will bring you back. What we find here in that prophetic writing is that people typically with a lot of zeal and connection to God, they they warn and they watch, turn to God, repent. And then after that, then we find embodied teaching that God himself in Christ comes and says, come, follow me. I want you to see I want you to see how I live and how I love. I want you to see what it's like to live well, to to love well. It's not enough just to have these rules. I want you to actually see it and taste it for yourself. And then finally, after Jesus fulfilled his mission, he then said, receive my spirit. And the spirit of God was given to them. And And then the people were led not by law, not by mouthpieces that God used like prophets in the past, but they are led then by the Spirit of Jesus. Now this is not simple, it's not easy. Being led by the Spirit of Jesus takes discernment and takes attentiveness and courage. And oftentimes the Spirit would lead the people in ways that honestly came against some of the law teachings of the past. And they would have to unpack that. But what they were experiencing is that God was growing their understanding of how to live well and how to know God and growing their capacity to love well. Now, why do I bring this up? than to show off a theory that I've had, uh, which I'm sure you're really amazed with right now. Why do I bring this up? Well, Paul is writing about how God had given the people guardians of the past to help them grow up, to help them understand their role in the world until the time was appointed, until the right time uh, where they could become heirs. In this letter we find the culmination of this new identity that not only have they been set free, not only have they been made children of God, but now they are led by the spirit of Jesus. The work of Jesus is to grow us up, to develop, to develop us so that we're not under the guardians of the past anymore, but we develop in such a way that we're led by the Spirit of Jesus. And far too often, we choose to be under the guardians of the past, maybe because the idea of being led by the Spirit of Jesus is too fuzzy, so we'd rather just abide by do's and don'ts maybe because being led by the Spirit of Jesus means I actually have to have this ongoing relationship with God's presence. I'd rather have a prophet. I'd rather have someone who's the mouthpiece of God tell me with all certainty what it's like to know and to follow Jesus. But instead, that's a guardian that God has used in the past and we've been provided a different experience. What Paul seems to be pointing us to is the Galatians church is what I hope that we are about as a church, as the vine, is that we spend our days in five and six. This seems to be where God's meeting us now. And I'm not saying we get rid of the rest of Scripture by no means, uh, but the rest of Scripture is a guardian to point us to Jesus, to see Jesus, the fullness of expression of who God is and who humanity was meant to be. All of this was a guardian to point us to the embodied teachings of Jesus and that in, as we grow in our relationship with Christ that we begin to experience God's spirit in our life teaching us, renewing us, pointing us the way, that's, the way that's good, holy, and beautiful. Now, this is a lot of hard work. Being led by the spirit of Jesus, it takes prayer and attentiveness. It takes discernment and surrender to learn to follow the Spirit's leading. But this is what the Spirit of Jesus is doing. Paul is saying this in verse 6 and 7. Because you are his sons and daughters, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts and the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but you're God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also er. God sent the Spirit of Jesus into our hearts to do what? Out of all the different things Paul could have said. Paul could have said to make you holy, to make you blameless, to teach you the way. The Spirit does all those things, but what is the Spirit primarily doing in our hearts? Maybe what is the most central part of what the Spirit's doing in our hearts? It is teaching us to call out God's name the Spirit's role is that the deepest part of us, our souls, our hearts, is learning, is learning that we have a Father, that we have a God. That's name is Abba. There's a bunch of different names we could call God, all-powerful, master, sovereign. Those are all true. But the Spirit's work is teaching us that we, this word Abba, you could translate it Daddy. This is not a name that you, you uh, introduce your father to a bunch of, a huge group of people. This is a name that's said in intimacy. And the Spirit's work in our life is to teach us that, that we have a dad who cares for us, who loves us, who is with us. And I know that some of us have a lot of baggage with that word dad because we didn't have that experience and of having a father who is uh, safe, who could come to. But I wonder if that's even what the Spirit wants to do in us, is to teach us the meaning, the true meaning of that word, that name. And I think prayer is ultimately learning to join in with that voice. Prayer is ultimately learning to join in that voice deep within our hearts, in our souls, so that we can live as we truly are, not only set free in Jesus, but as an adopted son or daughter. I've known friends who have had the tragic experience of having a child who's ran away from home and uh, usually has to deal with addictions. Um, They have no clue where their child is. And in my visiting with them, there seems to be two different longings that they have for their children. And the first one is that I, I just hope my child is safe. And the second thing that they share with me is I just hope that they know how much I love them That they can call on me at any moment. Don't you see that that's what the Spirit is at work in us doing? Is that God's Spirit is now residing in us, teaching us. You can call on your Father. You can call on your Dad who loves you and is for you. Who has not only bought you out of slavery, has not only given you freedom but is taking up residence in you and is teaching you a different way. This is an echo of what we find in Isaiah 43 when he says this, but now this is what the Lord says, he who created you, Jacob, who formed you, Israel, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. You're no longer a slave, you're a child of God. Not only a child, but you're an heir. And everything that the Father has belongs to you. All of God's kindness, it's yours. All of God's mercy, it is yours. God's strength and power, it's yours. God's faithfulness and loyalty, it belongs to you. You are an heir. So, as we close, I wanna go back, Kate. if we can, go back to verses six and seven. I'm curious, as we look at what, The spirit of Jesus is doing for us and in us. I'm curious, which of these identities do you feel like God is inviting you to accept more now? Which of these identities maybe you struggle with the most? First off, we find here in this that you have been set free. You're no longer a slave. Do you truly believe that you have been set free from sin You've set free from the guardian of empty religion, of shame. That you now, as a someone who's been set free, you begin every single day on the ground of freedom and deliverance. Or maybe it's the identity. Do you truly believe that you're God's child, that you've been adopted in Christ? Where your old name and your old identity is gone and you're completely and fully loved that you're as much as a part of the family of God as anyone else, or thirdly, do you feel perhaps that God's inviting you to explore what does it mean to be an heir? That the Father has vested everything for you and to you, all of God's strength, all of God's authority, purpose purposes to carry on God's name into this world. I'm curious, just which of those three, perhaps, we need to walk with this week, set free as a child of God, adopted child of God, or as an heir. Whatever it is, I just want you to know that the spirit of Jesus is at work in our hearts, deep within our hearts, to know that Christ has set you free, that Christ has brought you into the family of God, and that you have been redeemed fully, both now and forevermore. May we learn to receive this new identity with all faith and courage.